City Club Youth Forums are sponsored by AT&T, the Shar and Chuck Fowler Family Foundation, and the William M. Weiss Foundation. We're grateful for their generous support. Good afternoon and welcome to these Welcome to the City Club of Cleveland's Youth Forum Council, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. I am Adi Kalahasti, a junior at Solon High School and the Community Outreach Coordinator of the Youth Forum. I'm delighted to introduce today's forum, a conversation on hate speech and free speech with select winners from the City Club's Hope and Stanley Adelstein Free Speech Essay Contest and the Maltz Museum's Stop the, Essay, Essay, Stop the Hate Essay Contest. This year, these two annual essay contests asked high school students to contemplate how freedom of speech amplified both voices of change and voices spreading misinformation, untruths, and hates. In their 13th annual Stop the Hate Youth Speak Out and Youth Sing Out contest, the Maltz Museum raised the question of how students have chosen to be an agent of positive change when experiencing personal acts of injustice, racism, bigotry, or discrimination. In the 2021 Hope and Stanley Adelstein Free Speech Essay Contest, the City Club asked students what they would do in order to ensure that misinformation, extremism, and violence often spread on social media doesn't threaten the balance of free speech in democracy. Today, we're going to talk with contest winners about their own experiences with hate speech and their views on free speech in the 21st century. Specifically, we're joined by Jessica Chang, a senior at Hathaway Brown. She's the first place winner for 11th and 12th grade in the 2021 Hope and Stanley Adelstein Free Speech Essay Contest. She's also the first runner-up in the Moth Museum's Stop the Hate Essay Contest. Our second panelist is Caden Coleman, a sophomore at Menor High School. He's the first place he's the first place essay contest winner from ninth and tenth grade in the Hope and Stanley Adelstein Free Speech Essay Contest. Our moderator is City Club Youth Forum Council member Abigail Orisanya. And as always, with pretty much every forum, you can participate with your own questions. Text them to 330-541-5794. Once again, that number is 330-541-5794. And you can also tweet them to at City Club Youth. Abigail, I now turn the forum over to you. Thank you, Aditya, for that introduction. Welcome once again to our panelists, and congrats to both of you for doing so well on the City Club and Maltz Museum essay contest. First, here's a video of the 2021 Maltz Museum finalists. I was pretty young the first time I heard someone say something racist. You're pretty articulate for a black person. The N-word slid off of his tongue. Yes, please. I'm here at Boulevard Park and I believe these two black men are selling drugs. Was that how the phone call by my father and I went? I told people I was Lebanese and then they started calling me a terrorist, saying I was gonna bomb the school. Be quiet, you smelly Indian. People stared at me for my traditional Indian clothes. Someone who I thought was a friend sneered the words ching chong ching chong. And when I saw other people laughing at me, I laughed with them. I tried to ignore it. I told myself that what I felt did not matter. I never represented the female stereotype. Everywhere I went, I would hear, excuse me, sir, or hello, young man. I heard people talk about the LGBTQ plus community, and normally it wasn't a good thing. The teachers heard his words and took no action. Why did the teacher not say anything to the boy who was so hateful towards me? I don't think adults understand the pressure when an entire group of students turns against you. The internet is filled with people who believe that this behavior is fine. Hate always starts small, starting with racist jokes and ending with violence. I began cycling through the depictions of black people and the idea of black people being unintelligent, irresponsible, and lazy throughout the centuries. 56 years ago, my grandpa marched for voting rights across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama. An African-American born in 1938, my grandpa married a woman of Polish descent in 1961, when interracial marriage was still illegal in 24 states. My grandpa understood that change does not just happen. It is forged by people who act with intention. I watched the news. Protests were being shown on the news. On the day of the protests, we held our signs proudly high in a sea of other artistically crafted boards calling for justice. I'll never forget that day when someone had enough hate to call the police on us for working out. I'll never forget when a person viewed me as a criminal or a thug. I'll never forget the fear I felt when the officer approached. To think that woman doesn't know the outcome of her call or the hate and panic I felt, or more importantly, she doesn't know the real me. I've learned sometimes you have to do things that make you feel uncomfortable. 
But when it's speaking out against hate, it's always the right thing to do. I learned that my voice has power. Maybe if more people learned to build the bridge, innocent black men wouldn't have to fear the police. Maybe then we could stop the hate. Together, we could stop the hate. What we can talk about, we can stop. It can be very tough to get past the crowd of stereotypes. I keep myself educated and correct people who use stereotypes. I want to influence others with challenges and show them that they are loved. I desire to lead my life with love. I call for a brighter future without discrimination and hate. It starts with all of us. Everyone has the potential to influence society. There will always be people who laugh. When we laugh at others, we dehumanize them. But when we strive to put a smile on their faces, we uplift each other. Thinking about your actions or choice of words is something that anyone can do in order to be a better person. Together with our shared compassion, love, and humanity, I know we can make a difference and stop the hate. So powerful. Before we get started, we'll have you both read your essays. Here's Jess Chang. She'll be reading her Maltz Museum Stop the Hate essay. Jess? Great. Um, ha, ha, ha. As a child, I often pretended that I had no middle name because whenever people found out that it was ha, they would eventually make the same joke, force the same fake laughter, and refuse to say it correctly with just the one syllable. My middle name is my mother's surname, a tie to my Korean heritage, but in America, it's just a joke. And I learned from a young age that Americans like to laugh at funny things, but in this case, funny doesn't mean seeking or intending to amuse. It means differing from the ordinary in a suspicious or eccentric way. And there are many things that are funny about me in America. My name is funny. The way I speak is funny. The food that I eat smells funny. The music that I listen to is funny. Even my laughter is funny. Your eyes get so funny and small when you laugh. To this day, I double check all photos of me smiling to make sure my eyes aren't narrowed too much. Laughing can bring us together, but it can also divide us into those who are laughing and those being laughed at. Hate always starts small. It starts with jokes about Kung flu or the subservient role of Asian women, comments that eventually lead to horrific crimes like the shooting in Atlanta. It's never just a joke. During the pandemic, over 3,800 anti-Asian hate crimes were committed. Victims, mostly Asian women, were harassed, slashed, burned, and shot dead. It's become painfully clear, we are the virus, and white supremacy is America's immune system, expelling our foreign bodies by any means possible, starting with racist jokes and ending with violence. Today, I do live a life of fear. If someone stares at me for too long at the grocery store, I start identifying the nearest exits. Fear has taught me, however, that I will only stop being afraid if I can take back the narrative. I used to burn with shame whenever my middle name was mentioned. Now I put it on every form I fill out. I immersed myself in my culture and volunteered for groups like the Ohio Progressive Asian Women's Leadership, finding joy and empowerment in my heritage and work for the AAPI community. My senior year, I started the MISO project with a friend to raise awareness for North Korean defectors like my grandfather, raising $500 for Link, a nonprofit that helps defectors resettle. In Korean, MISO means smile, because when we laugh at others, we dehumanize them, but when we strive to put a smile on their faces, we uplift each other. Throughout the project, we've interviewed several experts and refugees for a short documentary. One memorable interviewee said that North Korea is more than jokes about Kim Jong-un. It's full of people just like you and I, with their own families and their own hopes. I understand what he meant. We are more than a punchline in the American story. We're the next chapter. Thank you, Jess. Next, Caden Coleman will be reading his City Club essay. Thank you. Balancing Act, protecting free speech and public interest in the digital age. The rise in social media as a primary way to communicate ideas has brought with it a proliferation of hate speech spawning violence in cities across America. Recently, dangerous rhetoric spread on social media erupted in the attack on the United States Capitol, where rioters desecrated a symbol of American democracy and killed a police officer. The spread of hate and violence sparked by unfettered online speech has prompted many Americans to call on lawmakers to respond by restricting hate speech. 
on March 26th, the triumvirate of social media giants, Jack Dorsey, Mark Zuckerberg, and Sundar Pichai testified before Congress about the role their platforms played in the Capitol insurrection. At this hearing, lawmakers from both parties agreed that reform is necessary, but disagreed about the best course of action. Freedom of speech is the bedrock of American democracy, which begs the question, how can free speech be balanced with protecting both democracy and American citizens? One possible solution is the proposed bipartisan PACT Act aimed at making companies more transparent about content moderation. While, while recent events have ignited a debate over whether speech should be limited on social media, laws such as those in Germany silencing the free exchange of ideas with prison penalties are not the answer. Instead, social media companies must be more transparent and should be incentivized to amplify the voices of underrepresented communities. The issue of whether or not to limit free speech is complicated by the fact that people widely misunderstand the First Amendment. The First Amendment protects citizens from government limits on expression, but does not apply to private corporations, which means that social media companies can restrict speech on their platforms. Access to information has evolved more than any writer of the Constitution could have imagined. And the proliferation of hate speech on social media has prompted Americans and lawmakers from both political parties to call for change. The challenge becomes developing the best approach to mitigate hate speech online. At the March hearing, Democrats and Republicans called for reform to Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which protects internet companies from prosecution when users post content. Signed in 1996 to protect fledgling internet companies, this law has not been amended in 25 years. Revising Section 230 is a possible solution. However, the, the two parties do not agree on how the law should be transformed. According to the Washington Post, Democrats propose changes to limit the spread of racism and information while Republicans argue that companies should reduce efforts that threaten free speech. Supported by Republicans and Democrats alike, the PACT Act proposal would amend Section 230 to require social media companies to remove posts and other activity courts deem to be illegal within 24 hours, and provide the public with more explanation for why content is removed while providing opportunities to appeal those decisions. The PACT Act should be passed as an effective way to curtail dangerous speech while making the monitoring of content more transparent to the public. While it is a step in the right direction, the PACT Act alone will not fully address this issue. In response to calls for limiting speech, the Cato Institute warns that often hate speech laws fall hardest on those they aim to protect. Instead, Samples proposes what he calls the liberal solution of more speech. Promoting more speech by taking steps to amplify those underrepresented voices would result in more balanced dialogue on social media. This, however, would mean improving the algorithms used to identify hate speech. Daphne Keller, Platform Regulation Director at Stanford University's Cyber Policy Center, explains that algorithms trained to recognize overt and coded hate speech on the internet falsely penalize people of color and non-native English speakers. Incentivizing social media companies to adjust algorithms to account for these biases could result in more speech and more balance to the messages heard on the internet. Improving algorithms and instituting the PACT Act to remove illegal posts and offer the public more transparency on how content is being moderated would be positive steps towards protecting both citizens and free speech. While this two-pronged approach of passing the PACT Act and improving algorithms is a solution that satisfi satisfies lawmakers from both parties, there are other possibilities. Some countries have made extremist speech illegal. In Germany, Volks for Hetzung, or the incitement to hatred or violence against an individual or group, carries a prison sentence of up to five years. However, this would not work in the United States. In a country whose cornerstone is free speech, 
making speech illegal would never be supported by lawmakers and could turn current social divides into chasms. Moreover, these laws would not eliminate hate itself, and those who spread misinformation and violence will gravitate towards more underground platforms. Daphne Keller explains how driving hateful voices out of the mainstream, where there is actually an exchange of different ideas, will expose them to only views that agree with theirs or views that are more radicalizing. Because making speech illegal does not eliminate hate and could result in more extremism, Germany's law would not be effective in the United States. Free speech is essential in our country and can be preserved, even while actions are taken to protect citizens and democracy itself. The time has come to modify Section 230 with the Bipartisan Pact Act and adjust algorithms to allow more, more voices to be heard. Section 230 was developed for internet governance before the explosion of social media, and recent events require modifications reflecting what we have learned about the power of these platforms. We cannot allow calls for change to erode free speech. Instead, we should institute proactive measures to curb illegal speech, provide more transparency, and amplify the voices of those who are underrepresented on social media in order to protect the foundation of freedom on which our great country was built. Thank you. Wow, having listened to your essays, I certainly understand why you both did so well. I'm sure we'll have an illuminating discussion. Um, to those tuning in, we are so glad to have you here for our final youth forum of the school year. Caden and Jessica's City Club essays have been posted to the City Club blog, and I recommend you check them out because as you heard, they are truly thought provoking. This afternoon, we're here to discuss free speech. Freedom of speech is defined as the right to express one's opinion without censorship or restraint. The First Amendment states in relevant part that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. There are currently quite a few exceptions to this rule. Some have said the First Amendment is too broad. Others have said it is no longer relevant in these contemporary times. Both sentiments have a tendency to greatly limit speech in terms of what is said and who says it. Jessica, with your essay as a backdrop, what do you think? In these contemporary times, is the First Amendment still relevant? Um, so I obviously think that the First Amendment is still relevant. I think um, when it comes to whether or not we think the First Amendment is too broad or too narrow, I think a lot of times we tend to misunderstand what the First Amendment is actually saying. Um, so when it comes to freedom of speech, um, there's like a lot of professors who've actually written about this who say that like freedom of speech, first of all, it only really protects you against, against government action. It doesn't protect you against private censure. Um, but it also doesn't protect you from social consequences of what you're saying. And it doesn't guarantee that um, you're going to like get an equal opportunity to be heard as your neighbor who's also going to be speaking out. Um, and I think that's where private surveillance and private censorship in the form of like social media platforms really comes into play. So I kind of wanna argue that I think the first amendment should be applied more broadly um, to these private companies um, to keep them in check because I think that as it is right now, um, people are in a way being censured by organizations that you could argue are more powerful than the government at this point in determining who gets to hear what. Yeah. Thank you. Free speech has become so controversial and it's not because there's an abundance of uplifting or encouraging or positive talk rather because um, there's so much discouraging, hateful, and controversial speech. But there are also numerous types of speech. There's hate speech, offensive speech, speech we don't like, or speech that just makes us uncomfortable. And we have a tendency to lump them all together. 
How can we make sure while trying to prevent or minimize hate speech, we don't silence speech that we don't like or speech that makes us uncomfortable, knowing that having an abundance of opinion can actually help us grow through constructive criticism and correction. Kaden? I do believe that freedom of speech is extremely important, especially in preserving the democracy and the First Amendment, which referring back to Jess's question is obviously still relevant, but should be changed to adapt to the current climate of social media and the climate of the world, honestly. Um, so like I said in my uh, essay, one of the one of the possible solutions would be pairing um, algorithm amendments with the PACT Act. And in turn, that would both limit hate speech and make that prohibited, as well as increasing the voices of misunderstood and underrepresented communities that are definitely that definitely deserve a voice in society as well. Other countries have tried, because um, uh, as you said, Kaden, the world is definitely trying to deal with this issue of hate speech. Um, and authorities are doing what they can to regulate what can be shared on vast internet problems. Sometime last year in late May, France was working to regulate content on tech platforms. So they tried to pass a new piece of legislation created uh, that created an obligation for online platforms to take down hateful content flagged by users within 24 hours. And if the platforms fail to do so, they risk a large fine. But the French Constitutional Council ruled that putting it in the hands of tech platforms without the involvement of a judge within a short period of time would result in an incentive for risk-averse platforms to indiscriminately remove flagged content, whether or not it was clearly hate speech. And the PACT Act proposal is quite similar to this. How can we ensure, um, being that America is a leader in free speech and it's something that makes us so unique, how can we ensure the PACT Act proposal will not infringe upon the freedom of expression and communication? Kaden? Like I and both Jessica said, I said it in my speech and Jessica said it in her response, the First Amendment is misinterpreted. So um, if hate speech is flagged by users, that means that content can be blocked by anyone. So the judge would help block the hate speech that is being shown on these private platforms. That, that would block illegal hate speech that is being shown on these platforms. Can I jump in? Yes. I, well, I think the PACT Act doesn't just, so the France was requiring social media companies to just take it down if it was flagged, right? Correct. Right, and the PACT Act requires a judge to strike these down, I think. And I think that difference means there's a more fair balance. Um, obviously judges are gonna be like, very, are gonna hand out very different rulings depending on who they are. But I think that adds like a little more of a safeguard. My concern would actually be that it could lead to a backlog in courts because there are so many posts that need a judge to look at them. Um, so I think in, in that, in those terms, I'm like more concerned um, about how it will get done. Right. Would you expect um, for each post that a social media platform wants to take down for um, illegal activity that they run it by a judge? And what does that process look like? So I think Kaden probably has a better answer as to how what that would look like. Um, what I think is that rather than having people like look at these posts one by one or even just looking at like a large number of posts and then trying to apply those precedents to any future posts, which is still a messy process. I, what, something that I suggested in my city club speech was that you put like a blanket sort of condition for that's going to apply for all social media platforms, which essentially would say, you're not liable for these posts that are on your platform. So we're not repealing section 230, but you are going to be held liable 
for any posts that your recommendation algorithms actively pushed that then resulted or incited violence. So it leads them, it puts the burden on them to be more proactive about what sort of content they're promoting. Um, and it takes that burden off of the users and off of the courts. Kaden? Obviously, we don't really know what this would look like, like the PACT Act being implemented and having the judge, but a judge would help in targeting and taking down illegal hate speech on social media. And like Jess said, even if there is a backlog, one or multiple judges would definitely assist with decreasing that number. Okay. Today, Facebook is pulling down um, people's posts just almost constantly. In the second quarter of 2020 alone, Facebook removed a whopping 22.5 million posts for violating the company's policies around hate speech. And the company says it now finds and eliminates about 95% of hate speech violations using an automated software system before a user ever reports them. Is there anything that you would change about the way Facebook is currently working to stop the spread of hate speech? I think something that's very important, and like I mentioned in my speech, as well as Daphne Heller, the Stanford University Cyber Policy Regulation Director, that these algorithms are currently targeting minority groups like Blacks and Hispanics and non-native English speakers. And I feel like the previous solution that we talked about was incorporating a judge. And I feel like the incorporation of a non-digital algorithm would definitely help be able to target the right illegal issues. I also want to say that a huge, huge byproduct of like the lack of diversity in the tech sector is the fact that anything, any algorithm, the algorithm that's supposed to accomplish good, like removing hate speech, disproportionately targets non-white, non-straight, non-male perspectives. Um, so if you look at like Facebook's um, diversity reports, you'll see that like they're pretty much massively failing at hiring more non-white, non-male coders. And that's a big problem because when you have people who are writing code, their algorithms, their products are going to be influenced by their perspectives. So a great example of this is Facebook has, there's a study that shows Facebook's ads for job placements have been disproportionately giving those ads to men and not women. Um, and that's because for whatever reason, um, the algorithm uses the data that's given to them by the coder and that data is going to have bias. Um, and so I think one of the biggest things that Facebook could do is try to diversify their hires, not just at the like lower to middle management level, but give more upper level positions to people who are going to bring more diverse perspectives. Um, and I think that can induce a shift in the way that their essentially all of their operations um, work. Do you think having a person comb through like an employee, um, let's say Facebook does desire to uh, decide to diversify their um, employees. Do you think have a, having a person comb through each post is a realistic method of um, stopping the spread of hate speech? And if so, how do we ensure that that person isn't putting in their own personal bias and um, they're making sure to actually stop the spread of hate speech? Or how can Facebook, what can Facebook do to ensure that that's what their employees are doing? So I think that we all know that it can't be just one person who's trying to target these, these illegal hate messages on social media platforms. But I do think that something that could be done is social media companies like Facebook should be incentivized to hire more diverse groups which I feel like would in turn both, like, we, like we've been saying, increase the diversity in these social media groups, as well as limit the hate speech and increase the voices heard from underrepresented communities. 
I don't I don't think it's feasible to have like human moderators um, for every single post on Jessica, you're muted. Sorry. Um, I was saying I don't think it's feasible to have human moderators for every single post just because the sheer volume of social media is growing every day. Um, I agree with what Caden said, and I think maybe what would work better is, and I think a lot of companies already do this, is have your moderators go into like a sample of posts that are posted each day and look at those. Um, just because it's, I think it's going to be impossible to weed out every single hate post using people. I think um, in the long run, you're going to have to use a computer to do that. Um, and so in, in that case, I don't think I'm, again, I, I think it does come back to um, diversifying your hires, whether you're talking about short-term human moderators or long-term, like figuring out a way to like accurately non, um, to accurately take down hateful posts without excessive discrimination or bias. Okay. Um, what are your thoughts on the on the Supreme Court case of Brandy Levy, who's a 14-year-old high school cheerleader, cheerleader who took out her frustration on not making the varsity cheerleading squad on social media? Do you think schools should punish students for their online but off-campus speech? Personally, I think that this the school's punishing, obviously, students online off-campus speech like the question was worded is very problematic but i don't think that it's in the school's place to um punish students for this speech online especially if it's off campus or does not pertain to school in this situation with um i think her name was brandy levy in this situation i feel like it is somewhat pertaining to school like she didn't get on the school varsity team so i feel like somewhat the school could have some room to punish the student. Jessica? Yeah, I think, so I believe that court case was settled um, some to two in favor of Brandy Levy um, and the Supreme Court ruled that students basically do have like First Amendment rights um, online. I think that makes sense because first of all, that speech was off campus um, and like multiple cases have already established like schools cannot like infringe upon your first amendment rights when you're off campus. Um, and I think that it's very difficult to like figure out where that line is between what can a student say when they're on campus versus when they're on campus, but they're saying it online um, and I don't think I have an answer for that. And I feel like that's something we're gonna have to figure out in the next couple years. But in this specific case, I very much agree with what the outcome was. And I feel like online speech um, that's off campus should definitely not be a concern of the schools. And it should very much be up to the students um, what they wanna say and who they want to say it to. Thank you both for sharing your thoughts and ideas. We're now moving to the Q&A portion of our forum. If you have questions for any of our panelists, we'll do our best to work them in. Here's the first question. There's a lot of critique right now about speech acknowledging systemic and structural racism. Why do the panelists think some people are so afraid of facing the reality of our shared history? Kaden? I feel like one of the largest reason, reasons why some people are so afraid of facing the reality of the fact that we all share a history is because some of us are afraid to confront the fact that our generation and our race took a part in historical racism. Um, I think when we we have a narrative that's very neat, that's very packaged about American history. Um, and that narrative gives a lot of power and a lot of superiority to certain groups. And facing that loss of power 
and facing sort of that loss of identity that comes with that really neat package narrative is scary. And I think people are right to be afraid, but they're not right in their reaction to that fear, which is to avoid it and pretend it doesn't exist. Um, and it's ultimately up to individuals to face their fear and get over it if we're to move forward. The next question states, what are your thoughts on the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act, which Biden recently signed into law? Jessica? So I don't know a lot about that. Give me maybe, can you check back with me in maybe 30 seconds? Of course. Kaden? I definitely think that in general, it's so heartbreaking that as a result of the COVID-19 virus, so many people are developing some Asian-based racism that are targeted toward Asian communities. But I really feel like Biden's, um, the Hate Crimes Act that he signed into law was very beneficial. So um, one thing that I read was, that's pretty interesting about the act is, I don't think it operates online. Like it doesn't really have a lot to do with social media, but um, I think that one of the things that I appreciate about this act is that there's like going to be a designated person in the Department of Justice to look at these hate crimes that are related to COVID-19, which are really disproportionately geared towards the AAPI community. Um, and I personally feel like that's a huge step forward just because um, as an Asian American, like I do want to acknowledge that Asian American and Pacific Islander history has feels pretty much like it's not a part of the American story. So it's pretty much ignored um, and not really acknowledged. And the fact that there is going to be someone who's going to be taking a deeper look at this does feel like a step forward. Um, and then I think the other part of the act that I did not know much about was that it's to like local governments to conduct crime reduction programs. And I also feel like that is really important. And I feel like including, um, since we are talking about social media, I feel like including um, a clause about social media um, and you know actually looking at giving money to those governments, um, local governments to counteract hateful speech online could also be a pretty effective way of reducing crime in local communities. Thank you. The next question, um, uh, we'll start with you, Kaden, is asking, can you describe your main arguments in your essays? And what was your process for writing a compelling essay? So in my essay, my main argument is obviously that so that um, social media has very, very much erupted since Section 230 was passed. And it is so important to make amendments to that and fully understand the First Amendment. We can all acknowledge that freedom of speech is like the basis of our democracy and is very important in preserving, preserving that. Um, so my argument was that Section 230 should both be revised and also new algorithms should be put in place to target hateful speech on social media, but also make the voices of underrepresented communities more heard. Um, so what was my process for writing a compelling essay? I started thinking about this essay back when the Capitol insurrection was happening. And even before there was an essay contest, I was grappling in my own mind with how, our, how our country had gotten to this place. And the fact that hate speech was so prominent in that time and with everything political that was happening during the Capitol insurrection. Um, I was, so obviously I started, I was thinking about the possible topics back in January and I knew I wanted to write an essay for this contest. So I kept my eye on events that were related to the topic. And like I mentioned in my speech, the triumvirate meeting with Dorsey and Zuckerberg and Sundar Pichai. So I kept my eye on all of that and I saw the ways that their platforms had influenced the attacks on the Capitol and how they had aimed to prevent that from happening again on their own platforms. And it prompted me to incorporate my solution into my essay. 
And Jessica, um, I'll just repeat the question to remind you. Can you describe the main arguments in your essay and what was your process of writing for writing a compelling essay? Which one would you prefer? You can go ahead with your Stop the Hate um, okay. Museum essay. Um, so for Stop the Hate, I think, I mean, the main argument is very simple. It's essentially just, it's it's to reflect on the ways that hate um, infiltrates our lives, both small and large, um, and to kind of highlight the snowballing effect it has. Um, I don't think there was a huge main argument in that essay um, when I was writing it. It very much flowed pretty well because it's my personal experience. Um, I honestly didn't have to think too hard about that just because um, the essay was to write about a time that you've experienced hate or a time that you've experienced some form of discrimination. Um, and as like someone who is Asian American, um, that's pretty much like I have a lot of experiences to draw from. So um wasn't really that difficult for me. And then for the City Club essay, I agree with Kaden. Um, there's a lot of arguments. My main argument I think was really that we're focusing on the wrong thing. A lot of the times we're focusing too much on what the government can do. And while that's important, I think one of the biggest things that we should be doing in order to promote free speech is stopping what um, I think Dr. Zoboff um, from, I believe it was Harvard University defined as surveillance capitalism, which is essentially a form of capitalism that rewards like accumulating eyeballs essentially over everything else. And so giving companies um, an incentive, financial or otherwise, to stop prioritizing that economy of eyeballs um, is, I think, one of the most important tools we have in curbing hate speech while also maintaining um, an acceptable level of you know, free speech and a lack of censorship from social media platforms. Kaden, I know you mentioned um, the events of January 6th and how that um, had already inspired you right off the bat, which was clearly a day of unrest, but also a significant day in history. What exactly do social media companies need to change in response to those events? I feel like, like I said in my essay, the algorithms must be changed. Like they must be amended to, instead of targeting the underrepresented minority groups like black, Hispanic, and non-native English speakers, we need to be targeting the, the right groups, which are the illegal hate speech that is being put out there on the internet. And like the, what happened at the triumvirate meeting, um, social media companies are, they're not responsible for this hate speech, but they are somewhat responsible for monitoring it. And I feel like they together need to discuss the best possible course of action for mitigating hateful rhetoric on the internet. Thank you. Here's the next audience question. Free speech seems to always be at odds around the world. What do you see as the future of free speech rights in general? Jessica? Oh, so this might be a little bit of a long answer, but um, so I'm, I'm gonna interpret like free speech seems to always be at odds around the world to both mean like the disparate ways in which social media companies apply different standards in different countries and also in the way that like free speech seems to be under attack um, across the world. I There are two examples that I feel are um, pretty disheartening um, that exemplify this um, and I think are also two really good examples of ways in which social media companies can do better to promote free speech rights. So the first one is um, China. So I'm half Korean, but I'm also half Chinese. And so like I've grown up with tons of stories about, you know, free speech repression under um, Mao's regime. And one of like the really disappointing things is that Google like we all know this, like Google claims to be this huge like bastion for free speech rights, um, at least in America, but in China, it goes along with a lot of government censorship. Censorship. It doesn't question um, what they're told to take down. And so 
that kind of illustrates the fact that these companies are essentially prioritizing their profit and however many users they can get to over any sort of real company moral um, value system. And then the second example is there's this really great PBS um, frontline documentary. I think it's called A Thousand Cuts. Um, and it features this journalist named Maria Ressa, who we think was one of Time's People of the Year for 2017. And one of the lines that really stuck out to me in that documentary was they're investigating how social media companies and like the internet plays a role in censorship in the Philippines. And one of the things that I found was really interesting is they found that a lot of these social media companies are testing out tactics to censor or repress or selectively promote certain types of speech in other countries like the Philippines. And when they find that those tactics work, they import them to America. Um, so it's kind of like other countries are sort of like the lab rats and then they come and they like use those tactics in America. And so I thought that example is really highlighting the way that free speech in one country feels like it's separate from us. But eventually, if we don't get a grasp on, you know, protecting free rights in other countries, it's going to come back and it's going to affect us because we didn't do anything about it when we had the power to. Kaden, what do you see um, the future of free speech rights in general um, around the world and in the U.S.? I really feel like because we as like the new younger generation and because social media recently erupted and it's so prevalent in all of our lives now, not, ju not just as a source of information, but as a kind of um, trading system kind of of ideas. And I feel like we really are the future, but we must adapt with the times. Like I said in my speech, Section 230 has been around since 1996 and has not been adapted in 26 years, which is way longer before social media was on the rise like it is now. So I feel like, like I said, we need to be adapting with the times and we need to be willing to change. Jessica, um, you, you mentioned being an Asian American um, and the hate that you've had to deal with. Do you feel that participating in organizations like the Ohio Progressive Asians Women's Leadership have changed the way you deal with hate speech and hate in general? And if so, how? So unfortunately, I don't have a great answer for this. I think working, um, with AAPI organizations for like AAPI causes has definitely helped with, has definitely helped me and a lot of other people with um, like helping raise and in, helping give yourself like a modicum of intrinsic self-worth. Um, and so emotionally it does help protect you from a lot of the hate speech that's going on. But I don't think, I or many other Asian Americans across like, the country have really figured out a way to deal with hate speech um, just because there's always, you know, kind of the fear that it's going to escalate into something if you don't just kind of brush it off. Um, so I don't, I can't really say that it's given me like a satisfactory answer um, as to like how to deal with hate comments. Um, yeah. Thank you. Um, the next question, we'll have you both answer this. Uh, we'll start with Kaden. How does the idea of free speech affect you in your daily life, especially as a young student or as a young person and a student? So as a student and as someone who is born and raised in America, I am very reluctant to have and lucky to have um, free speech in my daily life and as such a large part of the democracy in my country. But also as a white male, I recognize that I need to be wise in the ways that I use my kind of power that I have because I have never been a target of direct free speech and I'm very lucky. So. Jess? Um, so 
I mean, Abigail and Kaden, you can probably attest to this. Like as students, um, we use like social media, we use Instagram a lot. We see like tons of different uh, like political um, opinions on our like feed. And it's kind of difficult to imagine a world in which that's not possible. So free speech is definitely something that like is important to me as a student. And I also like Caden, I recognize that I in many ways come from a position of privilege. And so fighting for free speech rights are important. But as a young person and as a student, um, I would also be lying if I didn't say that many times I feel like I'm just, I'm really tired of this debate. I really wish that people in government could fix this, that they could um, actually take a look at the research, take a look at the stuff that like Caden and I have been writing, um, take a look at those sources and actually do something about it because I am a young person. This isn't something that I want to be thinking about 24 seven. Um, so it would be nice if people in government, our local rep representatives could actually um, make it a priority um, instead of just kind of, yeah. Okay, I'm, sorry, Abigail. I'm sorry, Abigail. I agree with what Jess said, and I'm sorry. In my last answer, I misworded it. I, I meant to say I've never been a direct target of hate speech and racism as a white male. I obviously do have the privilege of having free speech, so just wanted to clear that up, sorry. Great, um, that leads us to our next question. What are the primary ideas or messages that you want people to take away after reading your essay? Jess? Um, so I think I went over like the main arguments of my essays. Um, what I want people to take away from, I think both actually, is just the fact that words matter um, and that while I, pers well, I personally believe there's a ton of policy proposals we could put together to ensure that we have like this ideal mix of free speech and um, a lack of hate speech and a lack of violence. Um, the thing that I personally am trying to get across in both of my essays is the fact that we should all be free to say pretty much anything we want to. And I think one of the greatest filters that we have that we're not properly utilizing is ourself. Because like I said in my City Club essay, when we try to sweep stuff under the rug, we're never going to be able to confront it. So it's really up to you, the individual, to figure out if what you're saying is going to have long-term consequences and if it's going to affect other people. Because no matter how well our policy is written or how well our government does, like in the end, you need to figure out what it's worth to you, like what free speech is worth to you and what the rights of other people means to you. I really agree with Jess's answer. And from my own perspective, I feel like what people should gain from my piece of writing is that, like Jess said, freedom of speech is so important and should obviously be preserved, but there need to be changes that are according to the time. As our generation keeps continuing to grow in the way that it is and is so centric around social media and the current like digital age and climate of everything, I really feel like we need to also grow with that and adapt our own ideas and the ideas of the big social media companies and everything. Thank you. The next question states, how do you plan to continue to fight for free speech or against hate speech in the future? Kaden? Like Jess said, we are our own, I don't remember the exact way she worded it, but we are our best filters. Like for what we post, I feel like something that I can personally do I really am going to start watching what I post more on the internet and I'm going to watch, watch what I say even in comments on posts that I see on the internet and monitor what other people say and kind of look out for that and try to get people on track to say the right things and deleting comments on my own posts that I see are hateful to kind of give hate no home in social media. Jess? 
Um, I mean, there's tons of things you could do. You can volunteer for campaigns that are like very actively pro-speech. You could call your representatives and say like, hey, would you like to discuss 2.30 with me, a 17 year old? Um, but I feel like, again, it is a very, it is very much a daily thing. Um, I think personally, because I, um, well, I'm a debater, so I am just like really into policy. Personally, for me, learning about um, different things that we could do, just educating myself feels like um, the most effective way at, you know, continually refining the way that I view free speech and in turn, like, affecting the way my friends, people around me are going to view free speech. Now, how would you convince people who are not usually affected or impacted by the hate spewed by the hate spewed in some online spaces to agree with these new ideas and um, amendments that you argue? Kaden, I feel like hate rhetoric and hate speech obviously has such a great impact on people. And like I said in my speech, it has such a large impact on minorities as well. And I feel like the best course of action to pursue a possible solution is educating people, like you said, Abigail, even people who hate speech doesn't really affect. I feel like educating them about the power that their words have. And I think um, Jess said this a bit earlier, that people really need to know how much power their words and hate can hold. And Jess, this last question is for you. If you could create your own social media platform, how would you design it? Oh, um, so I think one of the biggest things that I would do is I think that Apple recently came out with like this opt out option for tracking your data, like tracking which apps you went into. Um, I think one of the biggest things a social media platform can do is give you an opt in version. Um, and I would actually implement a double opt in. So not only do you have to actively say, yes, I am okay with you tracking all my data. You're also going to get like an email or a text that says, are you sure you want to do this? So it gives you like, a second chance to rethink what information you're really handing over. Um, and studies have like repeatedly shown opt-in options um, consistently give that social media platform less data to work with. And so the recommendation algorithms, algorithms aren't going to be as effective at pulling people in. They're not going to be able to figure out, you know, which inflammatory messages push your buttons the most. And I think that is one of the biggest things we can do to decrease the amount of hate, the amount of like inflammatory language that's being circulated on a, on a social media platform. Kaden, if you could create your own social media platform, how would you design it? So back to my idea of hate has no home, I feel like if I were to create my own social media platform, like positive ideas and messages would be so incentivize on my platform and because i'm not like a social media creator and i'm not big into tech i don't really know how i pursue how i would pursue this but i know that i would try my hardest to incentivize positivity on my platform as opposed to hateful rhetoric great thank you both um and thank you all for tuning in to the final youth forum of the school year we've enjoyed an enlightening discussion with the malts museum and city club essay contest winners on their views of free speech in the 21st century and what they've done to create positive change in their communities once again kaden and jessica's city club essays have been posted to the city club blog megna good afternoon my name is megna patera I am a junior at Solon High School and a member of the Youth Forum Council. Thank you so much for joining us for the final Youth Forum of the 2020 to 2021 school year. A conversation on hate speech and free speech with select winners from the City Club's Hope and Stanley Edelstein Free Speech Essay Contest and the Maltz Museum Stop the Hate Essay Contest. Today, we've been talking with Jess Chang, a senior at Hathaway Brown. She's the first place winner for 11th and 12th grade in the 2021 Hope and Stanley Edelstein Free Speech Essay Contest. She's also the first runner up in the Maltz Museum Stop the Hate Essay Contest. We've also been talking with Kaden Coleman, a sophomore at Mentor High School. 
He's the first place winner for ninth and 10th grade in the 2021 Hope and Stanley Edelstein Free Speech Essay Contest. Today's moderator was Youth Forum Council Member Abigail Orasano. Today's forum is, present, is presented in collaboration with the Maltz Museum of Jewish Heritage. City Club Youth Forums are sponsored by at and with additional support from the Char and Chuck Fowler Family Foundation, the Doris C. Michael Ski Trust, and the William M. Weiss Foundation. We are grateful for their support. All of City Club's virtual forums are presented for free every week thanks to generous support from Bank of America, Key Bank, the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District, and PNC. You can join them in supporting City Club's mission by making a contribution online, becoming a member, or donating by text. Simply text the word donate to 216-616-CLUB. That's 216-616-2582. And follow a few easy steps to make your donation. Thank you again for joining us today. We'll see you in the fall after our summer hiatus. Our forum is now adjourned.